0: the last few weeks, we have been exploring this statement of St. Paul's that captures the very essence of Christianity. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. This is the entire summation of the Christian gospel and the Christian message. From Genesis 1 to whatever the last verse in Revelation is, this is the essence. This is Paul's entire library is built off of this. And we've been talking about this for the last few weeks. Loving others is no small thought. It is no value added option to our faith. It's no check this box if you would like having loving others as part of your Christian journey. All right? It's no elective upgrade like do you want to go from coach to business class to our Christian faith. This is instead a truth that according to Paul and Jesus and other writers in scripture, that will govern our lives if we are in the faith. That will govern our lives if we are in the faith. So last week, we considered the parable of the mustard seed to, as a way to better understand Paul's statement. And this week, what I wanted to do is consider another classic parable that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I know we've spent time on this before, it was years ago now, though so I think it was five or six years ago. But that was a full-blown, word-by-word, in-depth, one of my 10-week things on parables, right? So we're not doing that. Today, I just want to focus really at the main point, faith expressed through love. The main point, faith expressed through love. For ultimately, we're going to see that's what this parable is all about. Okay? Of course, we have to read this parable closely. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's happened to this parable, is it hasn't been read closely. And so it ends up being used to support appeasement theology, the very thing that Jesus came to destroy. There is no appeasement theology. There is no God that needs to be appeased. There is a God that loves us amazingly. And we need to believe that and live into that. Okay? So... What happens, though, is the way it sort of sounds, without diving into some of the details, is if you're a good neighbor and everything will be fine. Just be a good neighbor. Just be like this Samaritan and everything will be fine. But that's not at all the point of this parable. Remember, love is an indication we are in the faith. Love is not something we do to get us into the faith. Two very different ways of understanding the Bible but I believe what St. Paul tried to help clear up, and certainly God in the flesh when he was here tried to help clear up, is that this whole mystery of redemption is indicative, not imperative, it's indicative. If we have faith, this is what our life ends up looking like. See, here's how it starts. Jesus did not answer the lawyer's question. See, the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so Jesus didn't really answer that question, why? Because you can't justify yourself. There is no self-justification. There's no appeasement. We can't save ourselves. This is why the communion table, I believe Paul teaches, should be open to everyone and why it's open here at Caney Community Church. You can't deserve this table, ever. That's what Paul was warning about. Examine yourselves before you come to this table. Because if you think you deserve this, if you think this is a certificate of ownership in some secret club, you are absolutely blaspheming God. Because you can't do this. You can't earn this. This is freely given. This is God dying for us. So there's no self-justification. So he doesn't answer the question. There is a God who dies to save the world, and that's the only justification there is. That's it. That's it. So Jesus asks another question to help the lawyer understand this. Jesus says... Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And to the lawyer's credit, he answered correctly. He said this. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him." Mercy. We're going to come back to this word. But basically, the lawyer understood that it was about the profoundness of mercy and not passing any test. The profoundness of mercy and not passing any test. Test, And this is why Jesus said, well, go and do the same. Go and do the same. He didn't say go and do this to earn your salvation, to validate your salvation, but to reveal what authentic faith is. If you're in the faith, this is what it looks like. Live in mercy. We believe in this God who is love, and that leads to a life of loving others. Because we believe we're loved. I was thinking about it during this, that second song you guys did today that we haven't done since like 2016, like an avalanche. Like that is like the sermon in many ways, the way that started off and just, it's so beautiful. And to just be consumed in the knowledge that we are loved makes you want to love others, doesn't it? You never want to love others because you're supposed to. But knowing your love, knowing your life has been covered in grace makes you more graceful. And this is the message of Scripture. So, when Jesus says, go and do the same, this is not a rule we need to do to obey, to be rewarded with eternal life. And this is not a rule that if we break, we're going to be punished with eternal punishment. That's not what Scripture's trying to say. That is a very human understanding of God. That is a very human-looking God, because that's how we act. God's way is much simpler, but... And here's the rub I'm sorry. It's far more demanding. This is the problem. This is where appeasement theology caught on with Adam and Eve. They're like, oh man, we can either go right back to him and say, we're really sorry, we know you love us, forgive us, or we can do it ourselves. We can appease him and make him happy. And there's a lie that we have to do that. But grace is so much more demanding. And because grace is demanding, that's why we love to stay in that appeasement thing. Just give me rules, and I'll follow the rules. Just tell me what a Christian is, and I'll be a Christian. But that's not it. k is brilliant here. All right? He says this. Sorry, I have to turn around. I forgot to bring this slide into my notes. If the world could have been saved by rules, which we could follow, it would have been saved an hour and 20 minutes after Moses came down from Mount Sinai. All right? And then Paul wrote this. We're in the middle of Galatians, so this is like all coming together. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded, the scripture, not me, not even St. Paul, the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Back to Capon. Salvation is not some felicitous state to which we can lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. It is an utterly new creation into which we are brought by our death in Jesus' death and our resurrection in his. I love that. There's a lot there. Did you? We, if you were here at the beginning after the opening video, that opening quote, for those who saw the opening quote, just followed. It's all part of the same passage that I pulled from Capon. And so this is exactly what we've been learning in our study of Galatians. right? This is what Paul's been saying. Paul understood Christianity is indicative. It's not imperative. In other words, our life... Lives are indicative or not of being Christians. Our lives are indicative or not of being Christians. It's not the other way around. Cape on again. We are not saved by what Jesus taught. This was the opening quote for those of you who I knew would miss it, so I wanted to make sure you got it today. And we are certainly not saved by what we understand Jesus to have taught. That's one of the great lines. That, like, is so convicting to me from the life I was brought up in and the theology I was brought up in. And we are certainly not saved by what we understand, understand Jesus to have taught. We are saved by Jesus himself, dead and risen. Follow me, he says. It is the only word that finally matters. Follow me. Faith that God is a God of grace and love leads us to follow him. Faith that God is a God of grace and love leads us to follow him. And that is what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan did this. And for it, he was not rewarded with eternal life. The Samaritan was simply living love. He was living in the only kingdom he believed in. The only kingdom there is. Built on the death of God. That's it. It's a kingdom that is for everyone. And to trust in that kingdom is to be willing to follow Christ. To participate in his passion. Take up our cross. There's one of the things Jesus says. To become part of the great mystery that love wins. And remember what I talked about last week. Because this is important. Otherwise, even, even what I'm saying can become something you listen to and go, Oh, I've got to be better at this. No, that's not. You don't have to be better at loving others. You have to be open to God wants to love others through you. We have to be like those mountains and those ocean waves. Just be who we are. Authentic human beings that love. We don't always want to. But it's being open to, oh, that is how it should be. Okay, God, you love through me then. And being open to it. That's what this is about. Alright, so let's consider the details of the story quickly. The big details. And I think this will all become clear. Okay, so here we go. This is not... Your Sunday school, Good Samaritan, just so we're aware of that. All right, so don't turn me off because you've been through the Good Samaritan before. Just try to stay with me here. Jerusalem sits roughly 2,500 feet above sea level. 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho sits roughly 800 feet below sea level. 17 miles separate the two cities. So that is an average drop of 200 feet. Per mile. This man was on a journey of great descent. Great descent. I think the choice of Jerusalem as starting point and Jericho as ending point was very purposeful that Jesus used. Very purposeful. Jesus could have said, man was going down a road. Right? But he didn't. He used this incredible detail. He was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. I think Jesus is telling a parable within a parable. I think this imagery of descent supports what faith looks like. And there's a turnaround for all of us. And this is a double turnaround. This is a double turnaround for a lot of Christians because of the way we were brought up. It's also a double turnaround for a lot of Americans. Okay? Okay. This is dissent. Authentic faith follows Christ. And what do we know about Christ? And that's why I couldn't believe you guys picked that Like an Avalanche. But I'm used to that happening at Canaan. Just, you guys come up with songs and it, it just this is it. Because Like an Avalanche talked all about what Paul writes about in Philippians 2. So here's the God we claim to believe in. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing... Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's a journey of descent. Right? There's no ascent there. That is going from as high as you can be to as low as you can be. And did you ever know, notice what the writer of the Hebrews says about this execution? Because the execution happened outside the city? This is what the writer of Hebrews thinks about that. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. So not only did God go suffer the ludicrousness of being killed by his own creation, which is lowly enough, it happened outside the city where the dump is. This is an incredible journey of descent. And this is what we are asked to believe. So I want to ask you to let this sink in. Because I think it can change our lives. Let this sink in for a minute. Let it get to the core of our being. If Jesus is God, if, and this is a big if. All right, let's be certain, let's be clear with each other and be honest with each other. Right? There's no proof of this stuff. There's none. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Josh McDowell aside. God forgive me for... But there's no proof. That's why it's called faith. All right? I know there's plenty of books, lights at the end of the tunnel, all that stuff. No, there's no proof of anything after this. Okay? So let's be clear about that. And that goes for religion and non-religious people. You know, they they are as dogmatic as religious people. Oh, there's nothing after you die. Really? You don't know that. Right? All of this is taken on faith. That's why atheists, I love when they talk about they hate faith. No, you're as... You have as much faith as religious people because you're believing something that there's no proof of. Right? We have doctors in here. Ginny, you're a doctor. There's no proof of life after death. Right? So there's a big if here. We believe this. This is why faith, expressing itself through love, is so important. If. If. Think about what you believe. How we live shows what we believe at times. So if Jesus is God, then descent, death, is the only real life there is. If Jesus is God. The idea of self-preservation, the ascent to self-preservation, which is what we're all about, or life, we follow is an illusion. It's not real. If Jesus is God. If Jesus is not God and there is no God, then ascent, okay, fine. Play that game. But I, I believe Jesus is God and we sit here claiming to be and so then... His sacrificial love is real. So faith and trust that what he calls life really is life. And so if we are in the faith, we will know that a life of descent into sacrificially loving others is the only way to live. Think about it this way. If God died to save us, doesn't it make sense that is what he really wants to do? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, if he died to save us, then it makes sense. That's what he wants to do. So when he says, hey, love your enemy, guess what he's doing? He I died so you could do this. That's what I want. I want you. I want to save you. So hear what I'm telling you. Think about that. And we come up with all these arguments and all these loopholes not to live like Jesus And what we're saying is, oh, he mustn't love us that much. It's like we think of him like airlines. Hey, round trip ticket to Orlando, $99. Yeah, not till you get to the confirmed checkout. Now you're at $378. And we think God's like that. It's free. Just live this way, and it's going to be wonderful. We're like, no, there must be a catch. There must be a catch. He's an idiot. We can't love others. We can't love our enemies. We can't do any of that. Do you see what I mean? So sometimes when you just sit back and you get rid of all your theology and you get rid of all the fancy words, sort of like this sermon is, there's nothing fancy about it because I'm trying to to figure out how to say this, and you just let it all go and you just think about it, oh yeah, he died to save us, so he must really want us to live. And then he says, oh, by the way, this is how you live. Why wouldn't we take that at face value? Why wouldn't we say to all of us inside, ourselves inside, that are fighting for self-preservation, fighting to be the best, fighting not to love, fighting for equality and fairness and and eye for an eye, why wouldn't we just look at all that and say, that's the lie? Because God died to save us and God says the opposite, I think. Why would he go through the horrors of dying for us outside the city, in the dump, if he didn't really want to save us? So here's the thing. I think we can trust God when he defines descent as ascent. When God defines death as life, I think we can trust him on that. I think we can. You know, I know in my own life, I've tried to do life so many ways. I'm still trying to do life my own way. And every way I try is ascent. Self-preservation, self-preservation, self-preservation. And I don't get too far. I don't get too far. Then we come and we listen to a song or we break bread and... And you just, for a moment, you glimpse this beautiful journey of descent into grace. And you're like, yes. And then you let go for a bit and you live into that. Then your self-preservation comes roaring back. But then you come back again and do it again and you keep going. So I think it's time for me personally to take the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's what the Samaritan did. So here we go. That's what verse 37 means. This is why I said the lawyer finally got it right. The original word is Elios. This means compassionate relief of others' misery. Compassionate relief of others' misery. Relief that takes no account of cost and is understood scripturally as an obligation of right relationship. Right relationship. So for those of you that have been at Cana for a number of years, what does right relationship mean in the Bible? That big word we always throw around and all it really means is right relationship. Yes? Yes? Righteousness, that a girl, Lynn, Shay, well done, excellent, they've been reading their Bible, they get a gold star. Right relationship, that's what righteousness is. So authentic faith, expressing itself in love, or right relationship, see, that's why living in right relationship is an indication we're in the faith. And not living in right relationship is an indication, do you see? You see? So what the Samaritan does is exactly what authentic faith always does. Follows Christ by expressing divine love in this world. Let's watch. Here we go. The first thing the Samaritan does is he uses up his own resources of wine, oil, cloth to treat the man's wounds. So there you go. There's his resources. He's using them. He's using up his resources to help this man. Don't let the language and the ancientness of this story not let it sink in what this guy just did. All right? Then, and I'm not even going to try to bring it to our day. I'm going to let you do that. Baby steps for everyone. Then he forfeits not only his own comfort by putting the man on his animal but also sacrifices his time as his journey is now going to take at least twice as long because he's walking and not riding anymore. But this is just the beginning. Just the beginning of what this guy does. The Samaritan then took the man all the way to Jericho where he brought him to an inn stayed with him overnight to take care of him, and then the next day he gave the innkeeper what would be the equivalent of food and lodging for a week or two. And a side note here for history that is important to note. In those days, if someone did not pay their inn bills, the innkeeper was allowed by law to sell them as slaves. Innkeepers were notorious. Which sort of changes the whole story a little bit when there was no room for them at the inn. That could have just been the innkeeper being, yeah, I don't want you here. Go. All right? So this was an incredibly real and costly effort by this guy, wasn't it? This is unbelievable what this guy did. And yet, there's more. Already, his audience is mind boggled by what this guy has done. We should be mind-boggled by what this guy has done. But this is just, there's more. See, this is a Samaritan helping a Jew. Most Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Just pick up the newspaper. You, you get what that looks like. Okay. Middle East is still on fire because of this ancient hatred. Right here in our own country, we have these ancient hatreds. Right. Most Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So the reality is this, you ready? This Samaritan literally risked his life in bringing this man to Jericho, literally. See why it's not your Sunday school story? Jericho was a Jewish town, and it would have been expected that he unload the man at the edge of the town and disappear quickly. For a Samaritan, bringing a wounded Jew into this town would be risking community vengeance. But that is exactly what this man did. Now, Bailey, Kenneth Bailey, the Middle Eastern scholar we use a lot, he uses an amazing description, brilliant illustration from our American Wild West days to help us understand this. Ready? Imagine a Native American finds a cowboy with two arrows in his back. He puts him on his horse and takes him to Dodge City, where he gets a hotel room, and he spends the night taking care of him. What do you think happens the next morning when the Native American comes walking out of the hotel? Yeah, it's simple, because it's in movies. You just see it in movies all the time. The cowboys of Dodge City shoot first and ask questions later. Right? Of course. This Samaritan was going to get killed for doing what he did. Did he? I, I don't know. Jesus always left his stories open. I think Jesus did that purposely so we would have to think more about our own lives in light of this. Like that special you guys saying. Just let it go. Get out of the question. I think Jesus would just be like, just fade into this mystery. Just let it go. But this is what it is. Descent. Here's what we do know. This Samaritan quite literally entered into the passion of the Christ. An ancient Middle Eastern scholar, Ibn al-Tayyib, says this. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Love that fails to give money as charity or ties that's common in this world. But heartfelt love that is free from seeking of praise or honor and which is willing to endure distress, (coughs) suffering, and loss, such as is set forth in this parable, is extraordinarily rare. You know, I wish I never heard this parable when I was a kid. (coughs) Because I had no idea what it was really about. I I think I see the Good Samaritan being on the highway. I'm like, hey, that's awesome. That's out of the Bible. No, it's not. There is no sacrifice going on. It's a nice thing to do, but we should all be doing that. That's not being in the faith. This Samaritan descended into the glory of sacrificial love. He spent his time, his money, his resources, and he risked his life. This was not counting the costs. This was giving everything up to help others. He became nothing, least little, lost himself. He took up his own cross. He laid aside his own life for the sake of another. Another who was an enemy, even. See, he didn't just do that for his kids. I, I hope we would all do something like this for our kids. I hope we do it for our spouses. I hope we do it for our friends. I hope you do it for me. Some of you, I hope. That's not love. That's human kindness. But that's not divine kindness. I think that's one of the reasons that so many churches have turned away from the word love. That it's less than. No. Whatever humanity talks about as love is far less than God. But love is not less than. God is love. That's why we should bring it back. You've all watched movies of World War II, Mm -hmm. pre-World War II Germany. Who would you have been? Honest. You're talking about a government that was mostly Christian. You're talking about a good cause. You're talking about the self-preservation of your country. And who cares about these people? Who would you have been? I'll tell you who I would have been. I, I would have been a rising star in Hitler's army. Once upon a time I had blonde hair. I was incredibly athletic, strong, smart, intelligent, handsome. Once upon a time. I would have been a rising star in Hitler's army. And for me to stand here and say anything else would be a lie. I think I need to start getting more into the faith. So that then maybe I would have been those, some of those 10,000 nameless people that you can see down at the Holocaust Museum who gave their lives to save one Jew one enemy of the state that's why Jesus said go and do the same not go and be part of the right church not go and have the right theology not go and support the right political party in your country go and live in mercy if you have had mercy given to you that's where it starts Believe that we needed God's mercy and know it has been given. Believe we are loved and we go and live in that love. The Samaritan expressed his faith through his love. My prayer is that we would all open up to what God in us is trying to do with our lives and have the courage to let our own faith be expressed through the divine love for others.